This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 31, The Olmecs. that humankind began to populate the Americas in waves from around 25,000 years ago. A significant amount of human activity has been discovered dating to around 15,000 years ago, stretching from the far northwest, which would be the logical entry point from Asia across Beringia, with evidence of human activity right down to the far south and Patagonia, in South America. The Americas were the home of a significant amount of animal species, including megafauna, which are large animals. A number of these species disappeared around 10,000 years ago, and there exists much debate about how much of an influence human beings had on these extinctions. Certainly, one of the earliest cultures called the Clovis culture, has displayed evidence of spear points and mammoth hunting. The Clovis culture emerged shortly after 11,000 BCE in and around the modern state of New Mexico in the United States. It is something we spoke about way back in episode 11 of volume 1 of the podcast on the prehistoric world. We then learned that the peoples of the Americas started moving towards agricultural ways of life. And we speculated about why this same development would happen in an area of the world which appears to have absolutely no connection with Eurasia, especially as the land bridge between Asia and the Americas had now disappeared underwater, cutting the Americas off from the rest of the world permanently. We also see the development of ceramics in the Americas, which possibly dates back almost 10,000 years. Now, it is interesting to speculate once again that we are aware that the people of Chinese lands had developed the most advanced ceramic skills known in the world, which may have influenced the notable Jomon pottery culture of Japan. This development in the north of modern China occurred before the last major wave of migration from Asia to America, so ceramic skills could have migrated along this route. However, I would expect to see some evidence of ceramics dating back before 10,000 years ago in the Americas too, so this suggests that ceramic technology emerged independently from Asian cultures. Specific pottery in the Americas would come much later. One of the other major developments of the Neolithic world was metallurgy. And although we know that metallurgy emerged with the development of copper working, especially in North America in around 5000 BCE, 
It is notable that the Americans were not smelting their metals and were simply hammering the ores, a very archaic form of metallurgy that typically represents the step before smelting when specifically discussing technological advances. The most well-known and talked about agricultural crop of the Americas has to be maize. Maize, which is commonly known as corn, with varieties that are well known as sweet corn and peppercorn, it could have been cultivated in the lands of modern Mexico as long ago as 10,000 years ago. But widespread cultivation normally offers an accepted date within the 4th millennium BCE. It was in the areas of Mesoamerica, fundamentally the lands of modern-day Mexico and Guatemala, and also in the lands of the central Andes, that agricultural societies would advance quickest. And it is in these areas that the next two podcasts will concentrate on. This week, we're going to stay in Mesoamerica and concern ourselves with the developments of the second millennium BCE. This is where we see one of the most important and earliest developments of civilizations in the Americas, which is something we refer to as the Olmecs. These lands were a home of a species of tree called Castilla elastica, which is more commonly known as the Panama rubber tree. During the second millennium BCE, people were cultivating the milky sap from these trees. This would be the first step to the creation of rubber that would ultimately end up being distributed over a wide range. The sap itself would be somewhat brittle, so there was a requirement to use the juice of vines to give the sap a soft elasticity which could be wound around objects such as stones to create rubber balls. There are a number of explanations for the purpose of these rubber balls across the wide spectrum of experts who have an opinion of them. One of the most obvious and potentially surprising uses for these balls for a date so early in history is the speculation that they were used in ball games, not unlike modern volleyball or baseball. Now we know that ancient humans certainly had a desire to engage in leisurely competition with the board games of the Mesopotamians and the Indus Valley Civilization. We also know of physical challenges such as the bull leaping practices of the Minoans of the modern Greek island of Crete. However, this is the first evidence of a ball game which resembles those of modern society. Also, it has been put forward that rubber and rubber balls were being sacrificed in a ritual ceremony, and this is evident by the presence of these objects in pits that have been excavated. So this would point towards a common ancient practice of sacrificing objects to deities or ancestors, which is commonplace in most ancient societies. I've even seen that it has been speculated that the rubber balls may have been used as a means to roll heavy objects from one place to another, which may be something that relates to practices used to move the large rocks that form Stonehenge in the United Kingdom as an example. Whatever their purpose, or likely their purpose is, 
we do know that the word Olmec is actually a word that has been translated from the language of the later Aztec people to mean rubber people. And therefore, with the emergence of rubber production, by association, we have the emergence of the Olmecs. And we can date this back to around 1600 BCE. The sacrificial pits in which we find the rubber balls also contain other items. Many wooden sculptures were recovered, which is incredible for this age, as we have recovered very little in the way of wooden artefacts because wood doesn't stand the test of time as well as metals, stone and ceramics. Some of the wooden artefacts recovered from these pits are busts of men with elongated heads. The subject of wild looking heads is something that is going to be significant. San Lorenzo San Lorenzo Tenochtitlan is a collection of archaeological sites to be found in the state of Veracruz in the modern day country of Mexico. The collection of sites gives us a good illustration of some of the earliest developments of this Mesoamerican culture which seems to have emerged which we call the Olmecs. The site of San Lorenzo overlooks the Coatzacoalcos River which feeds into the Gulf of Mexico. What started out as a small settlement began to flourish over time and by 1200 BCE we have something what we can describe as the centre of a culture, not unlike a capital city. The population may have initially only numbered at around a thousand people, but later estimates at its peak may exceed 10,000. So we should not be surprised to find early evidence of a hierarchy with an elite class ruling the city, skilled artisans in the middle classes and labourers in the working class. So we can refer to it as a type of chiefdom. San Lorenzo itself appears to have been built partly on a man-made plateau and it appears to have been a ceremonial centre. So we see the same desire for elaborate ceremonial large-scale building projects in this American continent site as we have done in Afro-Eurasia which is another name for the landmass which connects Africa, Europe and Asia. We even have reports of the discovery of a drainage system to control the flow of water within the city. This is something comparable to the drainage system of Mohenjo-Daro which was created by the people of the Indus Valley Civilization. So here we find another development which happened in the Americas, a continent where it was surely unlikely for the exchange of ideas with the Eurasians to have taken place. These developments are very likely to have taken place autonomously, which means that the people of the Americas were coincidentally making the same or similar advances to the cultures of Afro-Eurasia. However, this autonomous development of ideas is always a matter for debate, but for me, I do believe that these were the natural next steps. However, I can't be right about everything, so do make your own mind up. Large clay platforms were constructed for the residences of the elite in San Lorenzo. 
One of these residences gives us a very good insight into the construction techniques of the Olmec culture. A palace was discovered with earthen walls and floors, which resembled the rammed earth technique used by the ancient cultures of China from the same era. The walls of the palace were plaster finished and the plaster was coloured with hematite, which is the same mineral which gives red ochre its red colour. As such, the palace has been named the Red Palace by archaeologists. Commoner residences were constructed using the wattle and daub technique, which was a typical technique of house building in many Neolithic cultures of the world. It's basically a wooden frame called a wattle, strengthened by wet earth, which is a process called daubing. It would be around the year 900 BCE that there appears to be a change of the balance of power in the Olmec world. Where San Lorenzo appears to be the number one site from 1200 BCE, it appears that San Lorenzo declined and it was supplanted by the emergence of another city called La Venta. Quite what happened to cause the decline of San Lorenzo is very unclear. Climate change, river course change, conflict between two cities or something else. Archaeologists are yet to agree on the truth as existing discoveries are inconclusive. It does seem like the Olmec culture continued regardless. La Venta La Venta is northeast of San Lorenzo in the modern day Mexican state of Tabasco. It is much closer to the Gulf of Mexico and near to the Tonala River. La Venta was situated in the middle of marshlands, so it had that natural protection that San Lorenzo may have lacked. So if there was internal conflict, this could be a factor in why La Venta survived and San Lorenzo did not. We just can't be sure whether it was the population of La Venta who destroyed the monuments in and around San Lorenzo. If it was, then we might consider that this is the end of one culture and the beginning of another, but we will discover during the rest of the episode there are cultural connections between these two dominant Mesoamerican cities. It should come as no surprise to discover that La Venta became a larger settlement than San Lorenzo, with a population much closer to 20,000 people, it is suggested. As with San Lorenzo, La Venta was a civic and ceremonial centre. If we take a close look at the physical archaeological site, then we can separate it into a number of different sections. At the north end of the site, we can see a temple complex, and just south of the temple complex is a great pyramid. So here is a very interesting aspect of this culture when compared to other ancient societies of the world. The desire to build large monumental buildings not dissimilar to the ziggurats of Mesopotamia and indeed the pyramids of Egypt. La Venta Pyramid To look at, the object that is referred to as a pyramid at La Venta looks more like a large mound. However, 
closer inspection has revealed that the mound was clearly a deliberate construction. Investigations have revealed that there was a deliberate desire to construct a rectangular-based pyramid with steps to the top at each corner. Around 100,000 cubic metres of clay was used for the construction which reached over 100 feet in height. Speculation about its purpose is debatable, but most theories point towards it having a ceremonial purpose. It is the earliest known pyramid of the Americas and seemed to usher in a trend of pyramid building throughout pre-Columbian history. It seems astonishing that large-scale pyramid building seemed to occur independently in the Americas over a thousand years after they were constructed in Egypt. There is speculation whether there can be any possibility of a connection. Is there any possibility that the peoples of the Americas could have learned how to build pyramids from the Egyptians? The biggest argument against this possibility is that the majority of experts believe that cultural and information exchanges between the Americas and the rest of the world, namely Afro-Eurasia, were not possible after the flooding of Beringia by 10,000 years ago. The flooding of Beringia made access to the Americas impossible without a sea crossing, and the sea crossing would have had to have been made through extremely cold conditions. If this was the case, then it could not be possible for the exchange of the idea of pyramid building to migrate from Egypt to the Americas, and therefore the concept of pyramid building had to have emerged autonomously in two different areas of the world, along with agriculture and stratified cities, among other things. It is widely accepted that no significant exchange of ideas between Afro-Eurasia and the Americas could have taken place until after the Italian explorer Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas in the year 1492. After this time, many European nations began to mass migrate and exploit the riches of the American continent, which was named the New World. After this point, the exchange of information and the ideas between the two land masses was irreversible. Naturally, the Afro-Eurasian land mass would assume the reference name the Old World. Anything that happened before Christopher Columbus's discovery of the Americas was assumed to be of a time when there is absolutely no awareness of each other between the Old World and the New World. And this period of the New World's history is called pre-Columbian to distinguish a time before Columbus's arrival in 1492. The exchange of knowledge and ideas after Columbus's arrival is called the Colombian Exchange. La Venta, as a complex, is aligned 8 degrees west of north. This alignment is typical of Olmec sites. The reason for this alignment is mysterious. The pyramids of Egypt were also carefully aligned. However, the Olmec alignment went beyond their pyramids. The alignment of buildings at Leventa is similar to the building alignment of later cultures of the Americas which are attributed to observance of the sun. 
So here we are again, talking about construction in relation to the objects of the sky. It is similar in popular reasoning to the Neolithic megalithic sites such as Gebekli Tepe and Stonehenge. Plus, let's not forget the constructed observatory of ancient China. So this would suggest that human beings were naturally fascinated by the cosmos wherever they lived. Beliefs and Rituals When we are studying a culture where there is very little in the way of contemporary writings about cultural beliefs, we have to look at the objects that were being created and the nature by which they are discovered. So in very simple terms, if we were to discover many objects that are in the image of a particular animal, and they are in abundance in the most artifact-rich grave pits, then we can recommend that this particular animal must have held a high spiritual importance to the people of that culture. The Olmecs left behind artifacts and carvings which depict supernatural activity, such as a priestly figure offering a crested rattlesnake, possibly as an offering to a deity. Some of the other artefacts demonstrate other figures. The Olmecs were using jade to create figurines, but the jade available to them was in the form of jadeite, whereas if we recall the ancient Chinese cultures were using nephrite. Both jadeite and nephrite are forms of jade nonetheless. Some jade figurines that represented human form would be arranged in a particular manner and accompanied by celts, which would be carefully engraved. Celts are a kind of tool which resemble an axe head, but the celts discovered with the jade figures were very likely created to be ceremonial, and the way in which all of these items were collectively discovered strongly suggests some form of ceremonial ritual. Closer inspection of the sculptures and carvings seem to demonstrate a creature which appears to be part human and part jaguar. The jaguar is a key animal to both Mesoamerica and South America. The jaguar is at the very top of the food chain and in ancient times it would have had a widespread range which had depleted as the centuries of human occupation of these areas have rolled by. It seems that many ancient American cultures were in awe of the jaguar and this anthropomorphic jaguar image became a part of the mythology of the Mesoamericans. It is very unclear what this were jaguar figure meant exactly to the Olmecs. Often we can see that the were jaguar is depicted as an infant and sometimes in the arms of an older father figure. So there exists some speculation that it's possibly a figurine closely linked to a shamanic practice of harnessing the fearless and dominant power of the jaguar. Some experts have speculated that the were jaguar is a result of copulation between a male jaguar and a female human. However, this is based on speculation alone with some experts even doubting the fact that it has anything to do with the jaguar at all and that we have misinterpreted it. 
if we go with the popular consensus that there was a were jaguar spiritual being within the Olmec belief system, then we appear to have evidence of jade masks which depict the were jaguar with its slanted almond shaped eyes and its downturned mouth and broad nose. Often these objects were relating to the were jaguar were discovered at locations which would be related to shrines, cemeteries and temples. So there must have been a significant spiritual meaning to this image. Colossal Heads Quite possibly the most iconic image of the Olmec culture has to be the colossal heads which were carved. The stone was basalt and it is believed that it had to be imported from the Tutsilas mountains. This means that the basalt stones could weigh up to 50 tonnes and had to be transported for dozens of kilometres. Once again we see an instance of the mysterious transportation of massive stones which we have seen so many times already. It appears that humans were innovative enough to find solutions for transporting large objects wherever humans could be found. The heads themselves are fascinating. The facial features are not completely unlike the features found on the wear jaguar masks with large lips, wide nostrils and almond shaped eyes. The colossal heads can be found at Laventa but also at San Lorenzo which suggests that the production of these monuments was something that continued over a number of centuries. Some experts speculate that the heads each represented an Olmec ruler, but there is absolutely no conclusive evidence of this. One of the fascinating aspects of the heads is the fact that they are wearing some kind of headgear which resembles a helmet. One of the first assumptions that one could make about ancient headgear is that it would be part of some kind of military armour which would offer protection to a warrior belonging to a society. However, it may actually be related to the rubber balls mentioned at the start of the episode. The rubber balls that gave the Olmecs their name. It might be the case that the headgear was actually part of the outfits worn in the ball game that we believe the Olmecs may have been playing. Ball games. Now there's not been a lot in the way of written rules for the Mesoamerican ball game of the Olmecs. We have to rely on contemporary depictions and tracking back from future versions. The National Geographic Atlas of the Ancient World describes the ball game as a game between two teams playing on a sunken ball court. The balls used were the rubber balls described earlier in the podcast made from the milky sap of the Panama rubber tree. It is suggested that the idea of the game was to get the rubber balls into your opponent's end of the court without using your hands. Such is the competitive nature of the game that it is also suggested that injury was not uncommon, hence the requirement for protective equipment such as the headgear previously mentioned. Versions of this ancient American ball game exist to this very day in the form of ulama, but although it is a competitive form of leisure these days, 
there may have been a much more sinister side to the game in ancient times as depicted by some of the ancient artwork discovered. It may be that those who ended up on the losing team may have been executed, possibly as human sacrifice. So human sacrifice is something that is considered as a very realistic possibility in Mesoamerica and it seems undeniable when you look at some of the carvings and depictions. Wherever we go in the world, we see evidence of sacrifice, whether it be offerings of metal jewellery, surplus agricultural yield, livestock, or human beings themselves, even children. Bloodletting may have also been taking place, with evidence of stingray spines being uncovered at grave sites. The Olmec figurines that depict young children could represent child sacrifice, but they equally could represent rebirth. The beauty of the Olmecs is that they have given to us a great number of mysterious constructions and artefacts, all of which appear to be open to our own interpretations. The mystery is in part due to a lack of written explanation. Although there was the Cascajal block, which was something that we spoke about way back in episode 22, it was a stone block on which symbols have been carved which could easily represent written glyphs. However, we have absolutely no idea whether they are part of a glyphic writing system, let alone what they might say. Decline Although the Olmec culture seemed to be centred around the lands between the Tutsilus mountain range eastwards through the area of San Lorenzo and as far as Leventa to the far east, there is definite evidence of a cultural influence on a wider area as evidenced by the excavation and discovery of Olmec artefacts in the wider area. Olmec artefacts have been discovered to the west of Olmec heartlands in the direction of and up to the modern capital city of Mexico City, but also along the south coast of Central America, heading east up to the area around the other modern capital city of Guatemala City. Olmec culture appeared to be successful and somewhat unchallenged. Evidence of its early emergence began in around 1600 BCE and a major cultural centre called San Lorenzo emerged in 1200 BCE. This would rise in stature over the next 300 years before apparently being destroyed in around 900 BCE and subsequently supplanted by another settlement called Laventa, situated further east. Laventa developed and dominated for around the next 500 years until around 400 BCE, when there was a steep decline before Laventa was destroyed and abandoned. We really cannot be sure why Laventa was evacuated, but it may have been the case that the population of Laventa headed east and amalgamated with the proto-Mayan societies. It may have been that the rivers silted up and left the city dehydrated, or it may have been that volcanic activity in the vicinity 
caused people to move on. Whatever happened, it was the end of the Olmec culture. Pre-classic Mayan cultures to the east continued to prosper, but we will need to wait until Volume 3 to discover more about them. As for our journey, we need to travel south to the lands of Peru. Significant human activity had been taking place throughout the ancient period. So next week we will discover the progression of human culture in and around the coastal lands and the highlands of this region. Thank you very much for joining me in this week's podcast about the Olmecs. The first ancient episode in the Americas. It's been a pleasure. So thank you. Well, we're fast approaching the end of the volume, in actual fact. So we're going to be looking at Peru next week. Uh, Going on from that, we'll probably take an overview of America. Uh, Before we look at some of the uh, things of the ancient world that deserve a little bit more attention, such as the weaponry and the medicinal practices of the ancient era, we should be quite an interesting diversion before we uh, take an analysis of the entire period. Uh, so maybe you know, maybe a handful of episodes to go, and, and then we'll wrap up volume two, and then we'll go into the very exciting classical world, which will be volume three. We've had one or two kind recommendations um, through the Facebook forum for the History of the World podcast. Dylan Smith writes, Amazing, extremely informative, uses a format in which anyone can understand and also promotes individual research and for people to form their own opinions. Five stars. Thank you, Dylan. Darren O'Connor wrote, This is a very interesting podcast. Although I'm not an expert, I find this to be very easy to listen to in a way that makes it clear and understandable. Thank you for your time and thank you, Darren. Thank you very much indeed. So anyone else that wants to drop me a line or put a review online for the podcast, I'll always be happy to read it out so that you get the respect that you deserve for taking the time to write a review for the podcast. Remember, if you want to support the podcast in a practical manner, you can make a financial contribution through the Patreon website and uh, in order to find that, you just go to the History of the World podcast.com website and follow the link for Patreon. Now, we already have a number of Patreons. We'd love you to be able to join them and support the podcast and keep the podcast developing, keep it moving forward. That would be wonderful. Otherwise, rating and reviewing the podcast is always most helpful and increases our exposure. So don't hesitate. Do that right now. So next week we head south to South America, to Peru and to the Andes and find out exactly what was going on in that area of the world during the ancient period. So until then, have a great week everybody and we'll do this all over again next week. See you then. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. 
support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.